and welcome to Magic in the Madness. I'm your host, Andrea Sarmiento, and happy Women's History Month. Today, I'm just going to dive in, and I want to talk about this book that I read last year that literally has me in a chokehold, and I had not stopped thinking about it since finishing it last year. I'm pretty sure around this time um, in, in 2022. And this book is called The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams, and I love it for different reasons. So I love it because I find this book to be very different from other books that I've read, and also because of how it depicts history through a woman's point of view. I feel like some of the other books I read that I like are more, um, I mean, I, I do like books that have some sort of history to it. But I also like books that maybe lean more towards fantasy and history, like those two things combined. But also I read a lot of books that are more like romantic. Think Colleen Hoover. And I know I might get some backlash for that because I think there, there's like something going on in the internet with not liking Colleen Hoover anymore. But in my defense, and I really don't need to defend myself, but I just find those books to be very mindless. Like, you know, you've had a long day at work, you just want to read a little bit and not think. And I feel like those are very easy reads that you can get through quick. And that's just my take. I don't need to explain more. We're not here to discuss different books. Okay. So back to the Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. So this book follows the life of Esme, who is the main character. She grows up around uh, these prestigious men who are working on the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. And she grows up around these words since her father is one of these men working on this project, working on the dictionary, putting that together, X, Y, Z. So when Esme was younger, she would spend most of her time underneath the quote-unquote sorting table, just being a kid. And what a sorting table was, or what the sorting table is, is where these prominent men would sort words and definitions and even make edits to these definitions and their meanings to then be published into the dictionary. So over time, we watch Esme grow up and she's, you know, no longer small enough to fit under the table where her dad works. She gets older, gets her period for the first time, meets a boy, literally falls in love the whole nine yards. I don't want to give too much away, but the whole nine yards of growing up. And so this is where the history part comes in. This book actually follows a very historic timeline and takes place in the early 1900s. So during this time in history, there was the making of the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary that was slowly being produced. Um, On top of that, we have the women's suffrage movement, which was beginning in England. And on top of that, World War I enters the mix of historic events. And so all these men are being drafted into the war, which then begins to slow down the process of publishing and creating the dictionary even more. So what I find really interesting about this book is that it really gets you to think. One, it makes me think about the dictionary and how it was really dedicated, or sorry, 
dictated rather by educated white men, which, you know, no surprise there. I'm not saying that's a surprise because it's not. But the fact that definitions and the meanings of words were defined by these men and how they saw these words, even though there's, you know, context via different literature, different textbooks, you know, there's context clues on how these words are defined. But when you think about it, who are the ones that write these books in the first place, these textbooks, these old school literature readings and writings, they were white men, right? Where in the world is the diversity and the representation in that? There is none. You know, there are those authors that are women, they have stage names, I guess, for lack of a better term, because I can't think of the actual term right now, but they have stage names that are either a man's name, but a woman's writing it, or they're just anonymous, you know? And when you really think about it, words that only women or the poor would use would often get neglected as a word not being worthy enough to be in the dictionary. Because prior to that, no one's written these words down. Because these were not the types of people to be in higher education, to be maybe quoted in scholarship or whatever. So the words that women or the poor would use, specifically relating to them and their communities would not even make it in this dictionary unless a white man was using that in some capacity. So one of the quotes in the book says, words are like stories, don't you think, Mr. Sweatman? They change as they are passed from mouth to mouth, their meaning stretch or truncate to fit what needs to be said. The dictionary can't possibly capture every variation, especially since so many have never been written down. Like, wow, talk about chills. And when we think of the Oxford English Dictionary, that is a specific dictionary. There are other ones, such as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which I feel like does come up more when you search for a word on Google. It just pops up in that search engine when you're searching any word, really. And so I did some more research, and the Columbia Journalism Review says that the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is synchronic, meaning it concentrates on current active vocabulary. And I did try to Google earlier um, what yeet means, and it did come up for Merriam-Webster, and it said that word was added to their dictionary in September 2022. Meanwhile, the Oxford English Dictionary is diachronic, I think I said that right, I don't know. But that means that it is written and published and and concentrates more on a historical perspective. So the words that they allow to be published in the Oxford English Dictionary comes from already published literature. And so I guess my question is, which is better? Or do they each have their own place, you know, with one leaning towards more common use language in the given time period? Or do we think one is better than another? And why do we think that? So I just think about 
how it comes to this. So how it comes to words being defined, who decides what words belong and are worthy of being recognized over others. When we think about things in the book, like the women's suffrage movement and how it was gaining traction, there are many nods to how there are particular words that define or are related to a woman's experience only that get left behind. So, for example, in the book, there's a quote, another quote. It says, expect, expectant, expecting. It means to wait for an invitation, a person, an event, but never for a baby. Not a single quotation mentions a baby. And I just find that really interesting. I did some research, more research, because this whole topic is just crazy to me. And back in 2020, so not long ago at all, the Oxford University Press updated its dictionary's definition of the word woman following an extensive review triggered by equality campaigners. And I think there was also a petition going around to edit that definition because it was outdated and sexist. Like there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people that signed this petition to make edits to this definition. And not only did they amend the definition to be more inclusive, and I guess you can say not extremely hetero, or I guess less hetero, but they also removed derogatory words that used to show up as synonyms for the word woman, like bitch and wench, which I think is just, it's just crazy that this was even in the dictionary as a synonym for woman. Are you kidding? No, I guess you're not kidding, because you know who made the dictionary? White men. Again, not surprised. (laughs) But I just love this book, really, for how it presented itself. And I ended the book with a newfound appreciation for language and the jargon that we use now that we will probably never use in the next however many years down the road, especially the more casual, trending words. And I guess in that case, I'm kind of glad there is at least a dictionary that does capture these types of words in a more professional, published space. Because even if we don't use the word, you know, for example, yeet, or I don't even know, I don't, I can't even think of another example. So even if we stop using the word yeet as a society, let's say, at least the word itself is on record somewhere for it being slang for this time in history. And the same goes for words that no one uses anymore today, but more so leans towards being considered Old English, I guess you can say. And I also wanted to briefly discuss language and words in general and how everything I just said reminds me of how for so many Black people in this country, but also women in many areas of the world, were left voiceless. And for a lot of women are still voiceless because people took away 
or, you know, not even gave them the ability to be educated, to have the capacity to read or write, all of it. It it just feels so criminal. And when you think about it, words in any language are like ammunition, okay? They each have their own meaning. Each word has their own meaning. But when you put them together to form a sentence or maybe even create lyrics to a song or write poetry with, it's like it becomes much more powerful and impactful depending on how you put words together. At the same time, if you don't understand what is being said in a given language, it might feel sad for not being able to appreciate what you're being told and almost disconnected in a way. For example, I think about how I am a child of immigrants, right? My parents are from the Philippines. They did not teach me Tagalog, which is the national language of the Philippines. Um, And that's for concerns that it would somehow ruin my ability to assimilate here in America. Yet they talk to each other in Tagalog, right? Do I wish that I could understand them so that they don't have to keep code switching? Yes, I feel like that's a given response. It just seems so exhausting for my mom, let's say, to say something in her native tongue, her native language, you know, not really thinking about her response and how she's responding to me. Yet I'm here, so incompetent, so stupid. And I stand there in front of her and I say something like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Can you say that again in English? Like, that makes me want to cry sometimes, just thinking about it, if we're being honest, because I sound ridiculous, especially from a daughter to a mother or a daughter to a father, speaking and communicating seems like it should be second nature, seems like it should be in your blood, in your bones, I guess. And so sometimes it makes me feel really disconnected to my ancestry, my heritage, my culture, because of that language barrier, even between me and my parents sometimes. And one time, actually, I was in the Philippines with my mom back when I was 16, and we were visiting family on her side. And so I have younger cousins who live in the Philippines They are taught English in school, but obviously I can understand how it might feel embarrassing to speak, you know, another language that isn't your native language out loud in conversation with someone. And so for most of this trip, they did not talk to me. I think it had to have been like a few days before we were leaving or something like that. And my mom was trying to bribe them to speak to me in English in exchange for money, right? Like, crazy story. Like, this is my family. So where I do appreciate the effort to make me feel comfortable in an environment where my ancestors lived for so many years, I personally don't like that I couldn't understand my own family, my own relatives, 
and I wasn't able to communicate back to them. And I felt so incompetent. I felt like a baby almost in this space. Like, yes, I grew up, I was born and raised in America, but the disconnection of me and my ancestors, I guess you can say, feels like this is the doing of the colonizers, you know? Like, is this what they wanted? But I'm going to end this episode here. Uh, I know there was a lot that we talked about. Hope you all learned something new and took something away from this episode. I certainly did, especially doing research on the Oxford English Dictionary and some of the words that they amended or added even to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And just an end note to Women's History Month for all the ladies, the women listening to this. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep contributing to society. Keep communicating with people, speaking to individuals, sharing your truth. I feel like that in itself will define society in the future. Like we've come so far. It's not exactly where we want to be entirely, but we really have come so far for women and women's history. And and so with this episode, I just wanted to share some thoughts on words and how that is so powerful. No matter what language you speak, words and being able to communicate with people is powerful. Sharing our experiences as women, sharing the words that defined us, and educating others about that is so crazy. It's so crazy that we can do that. And so I'm just so proud of all of you ladies out there listening. We are the change we want to see, so let's just keep it going, right? Let's just keep it going. I really hope you enjoyed this episode this week. You can catch more episodes from me every Tuesday. And also go ahead and follow me on Instagram if you want to get more updates. DM me even if you want to chat about this episode topic. I'd love to talk to you more about it. So follow me on Instagram at Magic Madness Podcast. And also don't forget to follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts for notifications when new episodes are released. Thank you, thank you for showing your kindness to this podcast. And I'm so excited to share more with you. So thank you, thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.